welcome. It's good to have you with us. Uh, this looks like a fascinating piece. I'm just going to put a bit about you and the title of your piece and they uh, chat. Evil in God, a theological case for a robust ontology of the satanic and demonic within the panentheistic reality of God and why it matters pastorally in 25 minutes. <laughs> Go. <laughs> yes, okay. All right. Well, folks, hope you can cope with another Glaswegian voice after Marion. And uh, interestingly enough, I come to you from Central Scotland. Greetings from Central Scotland. I'm actually in the, the former vestry of uh, Falkirk Baptist Church, which is now currently a playroom for our preschool kids. But uh, I actually just, just I just thought about this when I was sitting here that Fred Crawley, who was the principal, th those of you who went to Spurgeon's, Fred Crawley was the principal of uh, 1950 to 1955. So all you historical buffs, there's a connection between this room and Spurgeon's. And uh, I'm thinking he's probably turning in his grave now that he knows the vestry has been made into a playroom. But uh, that's just the way it is. But I'm a father of four kids, so I had to get out of the house to, to, to bring this paper to you. So... I'm just going to start, make a start. Anglican um, ecclesial theologian Michael Brierley has named the panentheistic turn in modern theology a quiet revolution. Indeed, he names over 80 theologians past and present, including our own Paul Fides, who treads this middle path between the poles of classical theism and pantheism, whether by adhering to process theism, self-identifying as a panentheist, or labelled as a panentheist by others. Given that theology can be described as the investigation into how all things interact and relate to God, it should not be surprising that in the light of rapid developments and progress with regard to our understanding of the natural world and human nature, new ideas have been proffered vis-a-vis -vis, uh, divine interaction with the world and vice versa. A standard definition of panentheism is that it is, quote, the belief that the being of God includes and penetrates the whole universe so that every part of it exists in him, but as against pantheism, that his being is more than and is not exhausted by the universe, close quote. While this is a good definition to start with, any perusal of the panentheism eh, literature quickly unearths significant disagreement and debate over the nature and breadth of the preposition in and what it means that all is in God. Moreover, stakes Gregerson, we need to qualify what pan refers to and whether it is literal or not, and most crucially define the ontological position of panentheism in terms of whether there is a two-way interaction with the world somehow contained in God and God receiving a return of the world into the divine life. To aid the discussion, Gregerson articulates the three main varieties of panentheism, variations and syntheses of which all panentheisms fall under. Soteriological panentheism, where God's presence and being in the world is a gift, and only at the eschaton will God totally be all in all. Then revelational or expressivist panentheism, in which God's spirit expresses his divinity by departing from God, interacting with the world, and returning to God, having been enriched by the world and his interaction with it. And finally, dipolar panentheism of Whitehead et al., um, in which some aspects of God are understood in the classic sense as eternal, while other, while the other pole of God, hence the term dipolar, is consequent, i.e. temporal, spatial, and affected by the world. Parallel to this debate about the meaning of panentheism is the claim, one which connects to the subject matter of this short paper, that panentheism is by and large most popular among philosophical theologians and less so with systematic and biblical theologians. 
The main reason for this, asserts leading modern panentheist Philip Clayton, is that when theology enter, enters into interdisciplinary dialogue with science, metaphysics, ethics, and political philosophy, the panentheistic concept structure is superior to traditional doctrinal language for addressing problems in other disciplines, hence entering into the more interdisciplinary domain of the philosophical theologian. So if, as I reason to be the case, panentheism is currently enjoying a renaissance and prevalence in the contemporary theology scene, and that the theological idea that all is in God is widely held to be true, what are the epistemic consequences with regard to the question of the existence of evil? Put differently, how and where does evil exist without concluding that the source of all evil is in God? and so as a characteristic of God and therefore caused by God. More specifically in this short paper, I want to deliberately focus on another claim made by, made by Clayton that most, if not all, panentheisms follow Augustine and subscribe to a privative view of evil in which the goodness of God works in and through the cosmos to eliminate evil since, he continues, panentheisms that do not take the privative view offer no helpful theodicy since God remains responsible for evil just as he does in classical theology. Therefore, I will attempt to argue the case that in counterpoint to Clayton's assertion, one can espouse a panentheistic doctrine of God, which is defined and capacious enough to account for the presence and phenomenon of ontological evil. To do this, I'm going to draw upon the panentheistic doctrine of God of Baptist theologian Paul Fides, an inimitable account that presents constructive possibilities which can be developed further than Fides does himself in order to establish a traditional ontology of evil within the panentheistic reality of God. If successful, then this will near jettison God's overall responsibility for evil and negate a number of pastoral difficulties that might emerge when a privative view of evil is allowed to displace and replace a robust ontological account of the Satan and demonic as traditionally held in the Christian church. Despite panentheism being a theological proclivity of philosophical theologians, the inclusion of Fides, a systematic constructive theologian in the ever-growing list of theologians who espouse panentheism, demonstrates that Fides, as is often the case, breaks the mold and walks his own unique path. Fides is a self-identifying panentheist stating, quote, my own proposal is that panentheism as the participating of everything in God is a sharing and interweaving movements of relational love, end quote. As robustly worked out in his magnum opus, The Creative Suffering of God, he claims that a pantheist, panentheistic um, participative doctrine of God is superior to both the classic and um, pantheistic doctrines of God in order to account for existence, being and non-being in God and creation and how moral and natural evil affect a passable God of suffering love. Fundamentally, as a constructive theologian within the Baptist tradition, Fides seeks to undergird his philosophical and theological ideas primarily with, with theological readings of scripture. The covenantal nature of panentheism is, for Fides, intrinsically rooted in the earliest biblical covenant expressed in Scripture. All of creation shares in the divine perichoresis. From the moment God makes a post-flood Noahic covenant with all living creation in Genesis 9, 8 to 17. As a genuine covenant, this makes room for creation to respond to God and participate in God to greater or lesser degrees. 
Since the covenant is never reversed, there is a natural and biblical bounding, uh, building on this foundational principle explicated by certain other key biblical texts. In the Hebrew Bible, the psalmist declares in Psalm 139 that there is nowhere in all creation where God's spirit is not. And the prophets unequivocally announce that God makes other covenants with creation and has relations with other peoples while maintaining a particular covenant with Israel, Hosea 2, Amos 9. Isaiah 45. Meanwhile, in the New Testament, Jesus prays that all believers will be in the triune God, just as the Father and Son are in each other, John 17. And Paul, using the small W word of God from Cretan philosophy, states that humanity lives, moves, and has its being in God, Acts 17. And most centrally for Fides, the Petrine School spiritually encourages readers by promising that the calling and election of Christian believers results in their participation in the divine nature of God, 2 Peter 1.4, a promise from which Fides develops his participation as relations rubric of panentheism. Fides's central theological tenet of participation as relations in God is very much the warp and woof of his articulated panentheistic doctrine of God. Indeed, by his own admission, Fides believes that this is his unique contribution to Trinitarian theology. The main advantage um, include explaining the main advantages include explaining divine agency in a world state of flux and decay, delineating God's metaphysical and relational ontology in ways which undermine historical abuses of power and hierarchy, helping humanity in its relationships through forgiveness, intercessory prayer, and lastly the use and application of love in creative ways. Ontologically, God is love and has loving right relations with his triune self. And so the optimal way to describe this is via the language of participation. Indeed, Fidus asserts, we exist in a universe of participation with relationships at the epicenter, all of which is experienced within the very being of God. The entire universe is engaging in God like this. And so into this experience framework, we should place all other existential questions which are asked. Fidus claims, Fidus's claim of participation as relations situates him in a unique position within Trinitarian theology and creates a challenge when any attempt is made to situate him on the continuum of panentheistic understanding which some uh, suggest currently exists. Vital to this positioning exercise are the various ontologies of bilateral relations between God and the world which seek to elucidate the degree to which the world is somehow contained in God and God's perfection is influenced and affected by the world and creation. Space precludes a full articulation of Fides's answer to this question, but in light of his description of panentheism as a sharing and interweaving movements of relational love, his increasing, his increasing openness to experience as a legitimate source of theological formulation, his insistence on holding the incarnation of Christ as the key to understanding the world as God's body and his constructive work on panentheism, forgiveness and reconciliation, collectively all justify placing him on the continuum as one example of a Christian panentheist. That qualified view that states that God necessarily exists without creation, that the creation cannot exist without God, and that God willingly opens up his self-sufficiency to contingent creation in order to have a genuine bilateral reality to his panentheistic nature that he has freely determined to have with the world. Moreover, Fides' belief in post-death development and progressive possibilities also aligns him with soteriological panentheism, 
which frames God all in all talk in eschatological terms, recognizing the future consummation of all things dwelling in God in the eschaton. Having established the basic elements of Phidias's panentheistic doctrine of God, undergirded by his unique participation as relations Trinitarian theology, I want to now address how and where evil exists within God's omnipresent holiness and goodness without making God the primary cause of evil. It needs noted that Fides rejects Moltmann's concept of Zumzum, arguing that it implies that evil is a necessity of creation, but instead, like other panentheists, he promulgates Augustine's privatio boni. Fides juxtaposed this, this privative view with both a nuanced dialectical understanding of Barthes' uh, Das Nichte account and um, Heideggerian being and non-being in order to develop an understanding of evil as a slipping into nothingness and a definition of hostile and alienating non-being of the fallen world that represents the fallen nature of suffering which arises from a free creation. This non-being is that which befalls the sovereign God as he exposes himself to it and suffers from it. A significant, a significant corollary of Phidias's a priori commitment to panentheistic participatory doctrine of God, which he concludes coheres better with evil as non-ontological privatio boni, is that any definition of evil as a negation of the good means that when answering the how and where of evil's coexistence with God's omnipresent holiness and goodness, there is no lacunae for the scriptural witness of malevolent spiritual be beings rebelling against God in creation, nor a place of perdition for all sentient beings um, who, as a consequence of their free will, defiance and apostasy, have come under the judgment and wrath of God. This, however, is problematic when one wants to align with the tradition of the faith, purport the prima facie, uh, understanding of the biblical witness regarding the demonic and evil realm and seriously account for personal experience and phenomena of evil and spiritual warfare as a valid source for theological formulation. Indeed, there is a constructive theological case to be made for greater interlocution um, of contemporary constructions of ontology as naked existence, which does not preclude privatio esse, but remains situational within a panentheistic definition of God's omnipresent. A number of theologians draw on Boethius's um, definition of personhood as individual substance of rational nature, thereby proposing a minimalist definition of existence and sentience, which could be applied to the Satan and demonic in order to defend their ontological particularity without bestowing full personhood as found in humanity, a kind of semi-real ontology without human personhood. Now, while I acknowledge that there are forms of privatio boni which hold a robust account of the Satan and some panentheistic accounts that adhere to an ontological Satan and demons with volition and sentience, I propose that the greatest potential for this construction lies in Fides' use of von Balthasar's theology of the Trinity, specifically the room within the yes between the Father and Son for creation with volition to, to rebel by stating an emphatic and rebellious no within the triune relations of God. Now, in this constructive theological case for God's omnipresent panentheistic nature, which accommodates a personalist ontological account of evil, I need to apply Fides's appeal to and use of von Balthasar's yes and no in the relations between the father and son in a direction not taken by him. Fides draws heavily upon von Balthasar's work in dramat on dramatic soteriology, specifically the exploration of the initiated 
initiation of the incarnated son into the divine life of the Trinity and the central role played by libertarian freedom. This results in a delineation of the drama of the Trinity, a drama of kenosis couched in both divine and creaturely freedom. The creation of the world is the first and most significant act of kenosis, a freely given divine act that brings forth the Son and posits an absolute and infinite distance which can contain all other distances, including that of sin. Therefore, within this infinite distance is contingent creaturely freedom, an act of autonomy that is expressed in a rebellious no, a refusal to concede truth and denial of origin. As von Balthasar, declare, as von Balthasar declares, quote, the father sur self-surrender to the son and their relationship in the spirit which grounds everything. Human freedom participates in the divine autonomy, both when it says yes and when it says no, end quote. When creation says no, a twisted knot in the son's pouring out of himself within the relation of the father is realized, which is a situation made possible because it is only within the son's uh, Eucharistia that the father, um, to the father, that human freedom and perversion is exercised. So within the infinite distance between the father and son, when the son is freely brought forth in an act of divine kenosis, there is a resultant incomprehensible separation of God from himself in which exists a twisted knot a dark, malevolent, bitter reality of separation predicated upon creaturely freedom, both physical and spiritual, and including the possibility of hell given the free but absolute segregation of the father and son. If as already proffered, the rebellious no that constitutes a, a twisted knot in the yes between father and son is autonomy that denies both truth and origin, then the maximal expression of that rebellion surely is the biblical mythical account of the angelic fall and subsequent existence of Lucifer, otherwise known as the devil or the Satan, who is the one represented behind the number of the beast, 666. This number best signifies an ultimate falling short of divine perfection and represents a spiritual being who exercises disproportionate maniacal power as the ultimate denier of his own creaturely origin. Moreover, since Fides's panentheism is a qualified Christian soteriological panentheism, this allows for the exercising of creaturely freedom in positive and negative ways, differing intensifications of God's Holy Spirit and degrees of divine uh, presence and hiddenness. In other words, at present, creaturely and spiritual rebellion exists within God's omnipresence. With all that said, I now want to consider, albeit very briefly, the reasons why it matters pastorally that we do not ignore or jettison a robust ontology of the Satan as traditionally held in the Christian faith. Due to space limitations, I will focus only on two facets common to the Christian life, reading scripture and prayer. Regarding scripture, any counterstatement of the ontology of the demonic can produce significant seeds of doubt when a prima facie reading of scripture, especially the gospels, strongly defends the Satan and demons as semi-real with ontology without full personality. Indeed, ontological evil best reflects, as outlined by Wink, the scriptural revelation of a, of a changing Satan. He who evolves from a divine viceroy residing in God's presence in Job 1 and 2 to the antithetical, malevolent enemy of God who will ultimately meet his end before the full cons consummation of the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 20. Moreover, preclusion of an ontologically based definition of evil and the demonic considerably reduces opportunity for a Christian believer to seriously engage exegetically with biblical texts on the demonic 
and investigate phenomenological explanations of modern-day accounts of deliverance ministry. This could unwittingly make one vulnerable to the same well-known criticism of Bart, who was arraigned for uh, concerning his rejection of the idea of an angelic fall through the lack of exegesis of the salient passages historically and traditionally held to describe what Augustine called the angelic catastrophe. Concerning prayer, clearly if our starting point is Jesus's teaching on prayer, specifically that his disciples should pray for deliverance from the evil one, Matthew 6, 13, then it becomes problematic to find a coherent understanding of prayer if the focus is on non-ontological definitions of powers and principalities, such as human and social institutions with interior spirituality instead of a spirit world full of sentient spiritual beings. Indeed, despite Wink's advancement of his history belongs to the intercessor's theology of prayer, which aligns well with spiritual warfare theology, it is still very unclear what place prayer actually has in changing structures and power-mongering systems of domination that need to be confronted with socially and politically militant non-violent resistance. In fact, given the greater emphasis in the Winkian corpus on non-violent resistance than prayer, this strongly suggests that the question, can God adjust or change non-ontological, non-metaphysical structures and powers in response to prayer remains unanswered. So here I conclude my argued case that defining God's nature and character in panentheistic terms need not uh, determine a privative definition of evil to the preclusion of an ontologically semi-real account of the Satan and demons with volition and sentience. By developing von Balthasar's twisted no in the yes of the father and son as used by Fides, I found a way to theologically promulgate the all-encompassing sovereign presence of God that coexists with the irrevocable libertarian freedom of creatures, both physical and spiritual, to either rebel or follow their original design. This understanding, I have argued, makes more sense pastorally since it better reflects the majority prevalent view of scripture and the normal conviction of the purpose of prayer. Thank you very much indeed, Al. That was fascinating. Uh, we could talk at great length about the book of Revelation, which is where I have tended to hang out, and yep. uh, that would be fascinating, but now is not the moment. Um, I, I just wonder if, I'll ask a question, but can I just, uh, that JC says that was fantastic. It was, thank you. I think everybody's just processing. Do drop your questions into the chat. We have got uh, a few minutes uh, to, to raise some stuff, so feel free to do that. But I'll, I'll start us off again. Um, I'm just thinking in terms of um, how this hits pastorally and how we might uh, think about human behavior and human choices. In terms of this dialectic between the divine yes and the rebellious no, what do you then say to the person who claims as they stand there with the blood-soaked knife in their hands that the devil made me do it? You know, where does this land in terms of human culpability and choice? Oh my goodness, excellent question. <laughs> Fortunately, I've never had that experience. So, uh, but um, yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, it, there, there, there is, I mean, there's been so much written, especially from a psychological point of view with regard to this whole question about um, about blaming the devil for, for, for actions and free will and, and freedom. Um, I, would, I would naturally probably go for a kind of both and approach with regards to, um, you know, uh, seeing elements of the demonic as both spiritual and psychological, you know, so there, there would be certainly 
pastorally, I would be looking to explore with, with the person, you know, just what is going on in terms of their own um, uh, mentality, you know, their own uh, psychology within their mind. And, um, but not discount. And this is what I find, I, I seem, seems to be often that there's a kind of either or within the, within the literature, that you either go down the, the, the route of, um, it's all. It, it can all come under the the umbrella of of mental health. It can all come under the umbrella of of um, um, psychiatry and, and and psychology. And um, and then on the other extreme, you've got just the stuff that really just talks about it all in in demonic terms. Um, on the kind of other extreme. So um, it would really be a, a both and. But I mean, yeah, pastorally, I think this is actually very difficult stuff to 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 work through. Um, I've not had a huge amount of experience, I'll be honest, with with the pastoral element to it. Um, but recent times, I've had one or two experiences of of trying to, of, of suspecting that there's some form of um, demonic element that maybe could do with some sort of deliverance ministry. And I'm glad to hear that there's a sort of deliverance study group, I believe, in the Baptist Union now that are working on stuff. So, um, but yeah, no, great, great question, Simon. I don't really... Oh, that's really helpful really helpful so it kind of this both and it's kind of almost you know the, the devil's job is to whisper the possibility of something evil into being but there's yep. still also an aspect of personal choice as to what one does with that idea that's right yeah um, we've had a, a comment come from ashley so ash can i ashley can i ask you to um unmute and put your video on and i'll be able to there you go i can spotlight you would you like to put your question um yeah thank you um al that was very interesting so thank you for that um, uh, I've been wrestling with uh, Job 2.10, um, Job's response to his wife about should we not expect evil from the Lord um, as well as good um, in the light of the pandemic. Um, yeah. And I just wonder how the story of Job might uh, contribute to this sort of discussion, this co you know, conversation that you're having. I, I basically, I, I interpret, I, I very much align myself with Walter Wink on this situation with regard to the kind of sort of um, evolving picture and changeability of 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 the the the, the biblical character of the Satan. And um, what it suggests to me strongly is that there's at the end of the day, if you define evil, you've actually not understood what evil actually is. And the fact that he kind of goes from being this sort of viceroy who you know according to you know when we read job looks like he inhabits the courts you know the, the the heavenly courts of the with the gods and and everything else and he's very much operating on um a leash you know he's given parameters he can do this but not not allow it to um um you know but not kill job obviously um and then as you go through the text as you go through the bible you basically just see the 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 kind of changing of 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 Satan moving from being the sort of viceroy position all the way through to ultimately being um, just just pure malevolent evil, completely opposed to God, which of course was developed, you know, developed hugely, especially in the intertestamental period with all the writings of that period, um, and um, and that was very much the world then that Jesus was born into. This idea that Satan is the malevolent enemy of God, and um, so. Um, so that would make me just very hesitant to make any sort of any any sort of um, announcements or or conclusions with regard to the pan the pandemic and what um, what spiritually is going on there. Um, again, I would probably just be open to the idea that there's elements of the demonic in it. Um, uh, I certainly don't I don't align with the idea that God is in some way sovereignly sending it to us, but permissively 
it seems to be being allowed to happen. But of course, that then taps into do, you know <laughs> conversations about what the power of God can do, what the power of God actually looks like. Is omnipotent that you know does God have the power to smash this, smash this pandemic and uh, the virus into into um, uh, smithereens or is it uh, much more a chaotic power? So, um, in the midst of it, God will work. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. But, uh, yeah, great. Thank you, Ash. Um, Ashley, and uh, I think we've just got. Some, I did a preaching series uh, earlier last year on uh, Job. It was very fruitful in the in the early times of the pandemic. I'm going to ask Ron, uh, Ron Rye, if you could just ask your question quickly. We've got a couple of minutes. So, Ron, are you able to turn your video and stuff on? And I'll spotlight you. There we go, Ron. Yeah, I was I was just thinking, Al, about the the stuff, and thank you for the. Hi, Ron. Really <laughs> good say, Al. Um, I'm I'm thinking about the 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 capacity of yes and no in the guise of free will that we are created with, and I'm wondering whether, in your thesis, that makes the the Satan character. Um, or the Satan being a necessity for life as we experience, and what that then says about the sovereignty of God in in creation does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you're kind of tapping into just, I guess, the ultimate questions, which is the origin of Satan and where does he come from, and what's his, uh, yeah, what's his main role in in that, and because um, um, ultimately, I mean, this this is Fides talks about. Um, removing most culpability from god when it comes to the evil but he doesn't actually go to say that god is completely off the loop um, off the hook because uh, ultimately whether you believe in an angelic fall or whether you believe that you know the serpent in the garden is satan you know ultimately everything came came from god and so you know there is that sense that this is you know in an ultimate sense um something that god has yeah, allowed to happen and uh, and possibly uh, or even possibly get brought into existence so um yeah the sovereignty i've got i mean the thing is your warfare spiritual warfare literature definitely has a kind of more soft sovereignty um much more libertarian and that god is actually hamstrung by people's free will and hamstrung by this you know often by satanic free will and then the demonic free will as well so um there's just um yeah it's a more it's certainly that's why my thesis is definitely trying to um, create or basically write or delineate a, a, um, a more progressive theology, um, recognizing that under classical theology, there is just some real problems when you run into like genuine power. And this is the thing. I mean, a lot of this research has come from my 10 years traveling all over the world with Youth of the Mission, YWAM, where I genuinely, well, you know, where I had sat down and had coffee with people who had a family member who was cursed by a, a witch doctor and was told you'd be dead in 24 hours and the family member died in 24 hours. So, you know, you just hear these stories and you realize, my goodness, uh, there's a whole world out there where it seems that the demonic is far more explicit, far more prevalent. Um, on, on which but, note, we, we have to stop. I'm so yeah, sorry. Okay. We could keep That's going, right. but no we've run out of time and it's time Thanks. for, for Palace. So thank you so much. Um, thank you, Simon. Thanks. Great.